Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Fat Chicks on Top. We're in Pride Month. We're here with Raheem Fowler. He is a psychologist, a therapist. He was trained in Canada. He's been all over the world. He's currently based in South Africa. He does a lot of work around shame. He has a podcast of his own, and we're really glad he's here today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. You are our first guest from South Africa, although we do have listeners down there. So what took you from Canada to South Africa? Well, the pandemic, you know, um, as a therapist, I never imagined that I'd be able to work remotely. I never thought it was in the cards. And this pandemic made that possible and normalized it. We we often thought, you know, virtual counseling was for a select few people and wasn't actually very accessible. But it turns out we're in a new world now and things are possible. So um, I decided to come over here and and I'm a visiting scholar at a local college and I'm meeting people, having sex with some of them (laughs) and also uh, working on a book on gay men and relationships and seeing my clients remotely. A lot of your work is around gay men on relationships. What took you into that field? I would self-identify as a homosexual. <laughs> uh, so I, I, you know, I've been queer as long as I can remember <laughs> or for all of my adult life. And I got really interested in social work and psychotherapy because of really the opportunity to work with sexual minorities and the social justice lens that social work comes with. And, you know, I've always felt like being involved in different levels of community has been, it's been like a way to, people think it's about giving and it can be, but I think what gets missed often is that, you know, when you work in a community you belong to, you actually also get some of your own needs met. And so there's a lot of like comfort, affirmation, sanctuary, uh, validation that comes from, from that kind of work. So there's lots of personal reward. So when you're working with your clients and, you know, obviously you can't disclose, you know, we'll respect all their confidentiality, but in general, what are you finding now with people who are coming to therapy who are gay? Because it's very different than when I came out 30 years ago. So have things changed that much? Are people still really struggling with this or? You know what? That's a great question. I was at a, I was at a, a conference a few years ago where I was presenting specifically on uh, some of the challenges experienced by LGBTQ Muslims. And after the presentation, I, I was debriefing with somebody and they said to me, they're like, you know, Raheem, it's been 20, 30, 40 years. And like the information you presented was good, but there's some themes that still remain the same 
coming out is still challenging. People are still experiencing stigma. There's divisions within queer communities. There's like this huge identity conflict. And even though that was a few years ago, I think that is largely true today. It might take different shapes. You know, the expression of it might be different. So we might have more external affirmation about who we are because our our, our identities are better represented in, you know, in movies and, and, and popular media. There's also so many people doing amazing work, just creating visibility around multiple layers of identities on TikTok and Instagram. So all of that is fabulous. However, when you're first figuring things out about yourself, you are doing it in a predominantly cisgender, heterosexual world. And it takes a lot of bravery and a lot of time to come out. And I think you can only do that when you feel safe in your environment. So unfortunately, I think that a lot of the issues are still the same. However, I think there is a bit of a shift around, you know, instead of a focus on just on coming out and, and, you know, for gay men's communities, instead of there being a huge emphasis on HIV transmission or HIV stigma, it's become a bit more about, you know, relationships, body image, substance use, but arguably those things were issues before too. So I don't know that it's changed a whole lot, you know, but the landscape around us has. And so I think the specific nuances of what people bring up is a bit different. And you, you talk about how some things have changed and the multiple layers of identity. And I think that's one of the things I've noticed being in the queer community as long as I have is we are now talking about things like race and religion and age and all of that in relationship to our own identities. So as a Muslim gay man, how is what's been your reception in the community? Because we talk yeah. a lot about race and openness and acceptance. Has that been your experience? Yeah. Look, I haven't experienced anything overtly negative in my Muslim community, but before I came out, I anticipated a lot of negative things. There was a lot of projection and for good, for good reason, you know, and I think for a lot of queer people, you know, we anticipate rejection and, that contributes to our experiences of shame, internalized stigma, and we carry that with us for a long time. You know, for some people, you know, they don't see a conflict at all between their religious identity and their sexual identity. I, without, you know, a ton of, um, I don't know, there wasn't a lot of scaffolding that took me to that direction, but I did anticipate a lot and I did see those things at odds with each other. And so I had, I had quite an, like an existential crisis, but that was, you know, an existential crisis much earlier in life than a person should have to. So I did find that particularly isolating. Having been out for a number of years and been, you know, doing some significant community organizing, I actually find through queer Muslim people that I feel prouder about my Muslim identity, you know, because like we're creating our own space and our own enclave and like our own way of being. And that's kind of that's kind of fabulous, you know, so that that's where I find a lot of sanctuary and a lot of support. You know, my family is pretty good. They're like fabulous as well. But they like they don't inspire me to be uh, like to identify as Muslim. Like it's my queer Muslim people because I don't know they they just represent like a cool way of being that that I find to be really interesting. Yeah, and I th you bring up something really important. I think for a lot of folks who 
are in the process of finding out who they are. And we've had other folks on the show who were raised in very conservative versions of their religion. Uh, In the U.S., it's largely evangelical folks that I run into who... where it definitely is at odds with the evangelical religion in a way it isn't with Judaism or Muslim or or Buddhism. Um, But people have a lot of, we project about what's going to happen. We come out. And most of the time when you're talking to somebody who hasn't come out and they're in and and religion's important to them, we have really big fears around it. Right. And that our whole world is going to fall apart. So when you're working with people who are, who their religion is an important aspect of them, but mm-hmm. especially if it's a judgmental one like evangelicalism, how do you help them come to find their voice as a queer person? Oh, that's a great question. And I should say as a caveat, you know, like you can be part of any religious group and have a really tough time. So there are yeah. there are queer Muslims out there that are absolutely struggling. There's going to be queer Jews, queer Christians, queer Catholics. So Helping somebody find their queer voice for me is about asking, hey, have you met anyone that's kind of like you? And how do you feel when you read their work, when you watch their their YouTube or, you know, you engage with their material? What does that feel like for you? I also want to know. Tell me about the anxiety that comes up for you or the worries you experience when you think about being in close proximity to other queer people. Um, Another one is like, if I told you, you could be gay or you could be queer and Christian, what would you say to that? What would that look like for you? And if you can imagine a utopian world where you could be exactly who you wanted to be, tell me, describe what that week would look like. Who would be there and what would you be doing? Right. So I think it's really important for people to be able to dream a little bit. And not this is not like a, an unattainable fantasy. It's dreaming outside of what's being spoon-fed to you. Because you know what? If you want to go to church, if rituals are important to you, you, you got to do those things. Because if you're told that that's in opposition to other parts of you, that just creates a sense of fragmentation, right? And it's hard to heal if you're fragmented, <laughs> It's like a gingerbread house that's just been broken. Like, you know, you need a lot of icing to put it all back together. And you actually need to nurture the cracks, not not apply a lot of pressure to them. (laughs) Right. So that's kind of the way I think about it. And look, it's if somebody later in life says, you know, F this, like I'm an atheist and I hate what my religious community did to me and I experienced abuse and they made me feel awful about myself. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a huge sign of power and empowerment for you to be able to create that distance. That's what you should do. It is. And there are a lot of people who will remain in a version of their religion and different religions will have areas where and have uh, churches or temples or, you know, mosques where you can go and be accepted, right? Every yes. every religion is developing their their gay split off at some point, right? They really are. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so many of us. They're going to be forced to if they want to keep the thing going. Yeah, if they want to keep the thing going, that's so funny <laughs> because you know, like I support people who want to make changes from within an institution, mm-hmm. and people who also say like "fuck this" and I don't want to have anything to do with it. Like that's like both are. Totally fair. You know, I get it. 
<laughs> so a lot of your work is around shame, and I'm absolutely fascinated with shame. That's what I've been reading all about this year and trying to understand it. And shame is one of those things I think people know. It's like porn. You know it when you see it. You know it when you feel it. But defining it is difficult for a lot of people. So when you're working in shame, you obviously have to be able to put a definition on it. What is shame? Ah, okay. It's a big question because shame can be a lot. It can look like a lot of things. But if I had to define it, I would say it's an overarching uh, belief or experience where you feel inferior, um, where you feel you are bad, you know, so or you're deficient in some way. Shame is also a negative evaluation of yourself through somebody else's gaze. So if I think for a long time that, you know, my brown skin is less desirable than somebody else's white skin, I might walk into a room of white gay men and automatically experience something in my body that could be a mix of dysphoria, anxiety, confusion, self-consciousness, envy, all of those together could actually be labeled as shame. And what I'm experiencing there is a negative evaluation of myself through what I suspect is somebody else's gaze, because I've internalized that. Uh, how does that definition work for you? I think it works wonderfully, and it works wonderfully <laughs> for so many people we've had on the show, because we have a lot of folks who are neurodivergent, who are fat, yeah. who are disabled, and Anytime you are not part of what we nor what we say is normal and acceptable, and yeah. the more things you have that are outside of that range, the more mm -hmm. people tend to really struggle with shame and internalized shame. So, and you know, it's a lot of the conversations we have on here. So I think a lot of our listeners will go, yeah, you know. I do worry I'm not thin enough or I'm missing a limb yeah. or I don't think the same way everybody else does. Mm -hmm. So where do you start to break that down and get okay with yourself? Well, the first thing is we, you know, we have to validate where that comes from for people because, you know, fat bodies are not celebrated in our culture and in our world in general, you know, disabled bodies aren't seen the same as, um, non-disabled bodies, right? They're just not. And from a young age, people say things like, oh, I want my baby to be healthy. You know, I don't care what their gender is. I want them to be healthy. And I don't know what that means. Do you not want your kid to have asthma? Or are you talking about something else? So I think validating where it comes from is really, really important. Like you never want to tell somebody, oh, that's just in your head. The truth is, is that it came from a very real place. And that system that made you feel inferior still probably exists. But what you're probably not gathering as your adult self um, is the amount of po individual power you have to overcome some of the shame, to make meaningful connections, and to feel like a worthy person. I, I think about, um, you know, starting with where people... Like if you have trouble identifying where you feel shame in your life, I might start with, hey, when do you feel judgmental about somebody else? You look at someone else and you say, oh, I never want to be that. Or are there moments where you see somebody else and you feel absolutely inadequate at work, at, at gym, at the bar, with your family? And we 
everybody ha- does have those, you know, those moments. And so that's where we begin to identify what the experience of shame is like in your body and where it shows up in your life. And of course, if, if people are, if listeners are wondering, what does this have to do with being judgmental? Well, if you can't identify when you feel bad about yourself, I can pretty well, you know, guarantee that when you're hard on somebody else, that has to do with you, right? That's your source of shame. That's the thing you spend a lot of energy trying to cover up, whether it's about your finances, the way you look, the brands you wear, the money you have, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, and, and I think shame drives a lot of behavior, right? And if we look at it, and in the American political system, good Lord, shame drives like 90% of the damn bills in Congress right now. Um, <laughs> but how does shame end up, so, you know, we can take it in and feel bad about ourselves, feel judgmental about ourselves, but how does it drive your behavior? Well, so there's this theory called the compass of shame that talks about how we might um, defend ourselves or protect ourselves against shame. And the compass of shame says there's four main ways that we defend. One is we punish ourselves. The other is we punish others or attack others. We withdraw or we engage in shame avoidance behaviors. So attacking others is like being judgmental, you know, reinforcing a kind of social hierarchy where you're above somebody else. Punishing yourself is quite interesting. You know, I see that in gay men's communities when people experience rejection on online dating apps, they might say, oh, I really need to focus on myself. And they go to the gym a lot. Or they say, oh, I just need to be much more confident. Or I need to work on myself in some way. It's true that we can all work on ourselves in some way. But when you're feeling inadequate and inferior, and you try to take control of that, and you punish yourself in some way, you know, that is your way of protecting yourself from shame. Is it helpful? I don't know. Maybe to some extent, right? Because we do like to think we have control of our lives. But equally, it could be helpful if we externalize it and said like, hey, that's like this world telling you you're not good enough when you actually are. You know, withdrawal is like pulling away. So that could be many things for people. The most common example would be social anxiety or depression. So when I think about social anxiety, I'm also thinking about where did it where did it originate? Like where were you when you started to feel bad and particularly self-conscious about speaking, your mannerisms, saying the wrong thing, being judged? And we've got experiences, people of telling people telling us, oh, you're too femme, or how come you talk like a girl, or how come you say this like that? You know, it could be from our parents or classmates, et cetera. The last one is shame avoidance. And and you know, that can look like working too much. That can look like over-investing in something like um, uh, like your, your body goals and sculpting your body in some crazy way. It could also look like working too much, drinking too much. Anything that gets you away from, you know, it doesn't allow people the opportunity to evaluate you, neg- to evaluate you negatively. Right. So those are shame avoidance strategies. So those are the kinds of things I think we, 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 we engage in. You did ask like on a larger level, you know, so that's individual on a larger level. You can see how each one of those behaviors affects our ability to really make meaningful connections because we're so busy protecting ourselves. 
you know, we can't really let people know what our, our sore spots are, what our wounds are, what our vulnerabilities are. So I would say, you know, uh, at a basic level, you know, shame affects our ability to connect with others in a, in a authentic way. And you've brought up that there, there are multiple feelings that go into shame. One of them was envy. And it's not, that's one of those things. The only time I see envy talked about is when it comes up in a horror film. Right. And it's like seven deadly sins and envy is one of them. We don't talk about envy a lot, but I think especially Mm. in the queer community, it's a big deal. So how does shame and envy connect and and what is, what does it do? Look, I think they're, they're like these dark cousins, (laughs) you know, we don't talk about envy and you're right. I think it's because we've casted it out. It's a sin. It's sinful to covet, right? Mm-hmm. Coveting and like longing for something somebody else has is, is, is not a good thing. It's not a good place to be. I think more generally, the imprint it's left on our culture is like to, to be envious is like to have a bad, it's like a bad quality. Really, you should focus on yourself. And what I don't like about that yeah. is it erases our very real lived experience where we do compare ourselves to other people. Don't tell me, you know, that to love somebody else, I have to love myself. Fuck right off. I'm going to learn to love in an environment where other people show me that I'm worthy like that. Those things are relational. And if I'm going to be in relation with people, I'm also going to be envious of the bodies they have, the sex they're having, the money in their bank, what they're able to acquire, how close they are to their family, all of that stuff. Now, it's important that it doesn't become malicious and it doesn't become toxic and pathological, but you can have a bit of you know, benign envy and you could, I think you could talk about it, right? So for example, you know, if a friend is telling me about the hookups they're having or the success they're having on a, on a, on a dating app um, or like this amazing rope bondage scene they had with a stranger, uh, you know, I could be very envious. Like my envy, if it's malicious, is going to want to compete with them, put them down, judge them and destroy them. But if it's like more benign and I can contain it, I can just say, you know, I envy you. Can you teach me about how to how I can have experiences like that? There's nothing wrong with that. But if I try to suppress that envy and think I'm a bad person for experiencing envy, that activates my shame immediately, right? Because I'm a bad person because I'm not like you, and I'm a, and I'm even more of a bad person for experiencing the envy for wanting to be like you. Ooh, that's not a good place to be. And then we just keep heaping it on ourselves, right? And I love the fact that yes. you say. If you don't tell me I've got to love myself before I can love anybody else, because good Lord, that it comes up so much. I mean, that's, yeah, that's the tagline of RuPaul's drag race. Like, you know, yes, it's a big deal in our community. And you brought up that people will feel shame. So then it's, I have to work on myself. I'm always the problem. So I have to exactly change myself. So how do we break that? Because it is so inculcated into gay culture. Yes. Look, 
a bit of individualism when it comes to experiencing change in your environment is going to be necessary, right? So, you you know, like if I say, if somebody says something fat phobic and my advice is, how can we work on you not taking it as personally or work on you responding in a way that, you know, stands up for yourself? That's an individual response. And it comes from, it's embedded in this idea of of the self-love and and asserting um, yourself. But we have to also think about like, you know, am I participating in a social circle where my needs aren't being met and I'm constantly being devalued? Because that is a system problem, right? The world is the problem. And so that means that, you know, it's not about me changing who I am. It's me feeling Instead of feeling bad about who I am, I need to be, I'm likely going to shift over from shame to just sadness and grief about how bad the world is around me. And that maybe now I can't spend as much time with these people who make me feel bad. I'll give you an example. You know, there's like a vibrant circuit party scene in gay men's communities, right? We, we do the fun, we do the fun um, capsules, <laughs> we dance all night, we love each other um, for, you know, for that night. And <laughs> we might also love each other outside though, mm-hmm. that time, but there is something about how we feel in that space of shirtless men and beautiful sound systems and things, you know, pumping through our veins. And that is like a really fun experience. But is that a sustainable thing to do without those pretty capsules or those pretty, you know, teddy bear pills or whatever they look like in your, in your local town? Um, and a lot of people would say, no, I can't, I can't do that without, like, that's my access need, you know? And so that makes me think about how fun that space is and how necessary it might be. I don't want it to be erased, but if it's going to essentially make me feel bad about myself, then there's something about that space that's not good for me, right? So I have to really limit how I participate or I really have to think about, I have to be more intentional about how I participate. What headspace am I going in with? What what is my self-talk like? Who are the people I'm going with? What are my expectations? We really have to to peel it apart Um, because, you know, I think of a queer community as like subversive and counterculture and political. And if I become a gym bunny and I don't think about those things, you know, between the gym and those capsules, I become a bit of a shell of a person, right? And I, and, and both the gym and the capsules become a way to participate in that environment without thinking about how that environment is governed 89% of my life and has fed me an idea of who I'm supposed to be in the world and how I'm going to be evaluated that I've just bought into. And that's, that's not okay. Like that's harmful, you know, like that's really people, people might think this is strong, but I would say it's like a kind of violence when you have, you know, a, a very small space in the world that dictates so much of your life and your worth that, that mimics some of the small town community family mentalities we try to run away from. So we, we really mustn't recreate those, right? That's not, that's not very helpful. So for people who are working, you're working with, or even in your own life, how do you go about finding a healthy space in the queer community to really connect and 
feed those good aspects of your life? Well, you know, I would say, okay, so there's some, I've got a few answers here, you know? Uh So when we can identify shame and bring some language to it, first, I, I do think that's an intervention in and of itself. Like that can be really helpful. I think it's also really important not to overemphasize confidence and your frame of mind. It's just how you think about things. Because when we do that, we discount the pain that we carry from our childhood, right? And the experiences of anticipating rejection, because you're going to experience shame in unexpected ways and it reopens a wound. And you have to think about how am I going to deal with this reopen wound, right? So that is an ongoing thing. I can't do that all, you know, upfront in, in a few sessions of therapy. It's an ongoing thing. And then I have to think about who in my life, like how I, how I, how I want to organize my life. What distance do I need? When am I in a position to have more proximity to the pe- with people who activate my shame, et cetera? Within queer community, for me, it's been helpful to be around politicized people who I can really talk to about the things that I'm frustrated about or the things that make me feel bad about myself. Another challenging thing is, you know, we have to challenge ourselves around the power we do have, right? So if I'm struggling with my body image, it's really important for me to also think about the privilege I have in terms of like how I'm experienced in the world as a relatively slim person who, you know, Uh, You know, what is it like for me as somebody who's always worried about body fat? And what is the implication of being friends with people who are actually fat and red as fat, right? Like they're like, I transmit harmful messages to them when I am stuck in this headspace, right? So I have to think about that. I have to think about accountability on a community level. The last thing I would say is, and, and this might, this might sound so odd, but I think queer relationships if you if you find the right people, you know, and you can really connect, whether it's a deep friendship or a romantic relationship, I think those can be really unique structures where we can heal from our past. And, and I think in our relationships, we need to practice saying affirming things to each other. Like if somebody says, oh, I don't like how I look. And, you know, it's really important to tell your partner, you look great. Or I didn't go to the gym. You know what? I don't, just so you know, like that. I don't care about that so much. Like whether you do or not is no big deal. Like you look great. We need to tell our partners they look great. And we need to tell them things like, like their body fat is sexy. Their, however they present is sexy. We need to tell them when we're into them. We need to compliment them. You know, I think relationships can be such a beautiful structure for healing. If, if you know, if the right conditions are there. And I think in the queer community, we do have the advantage of being able to choose our close family. You know, so many of yes. us leave our, our biological family. And um, I'll, I'll joke with people, do you have a roster, you know, like your fantasy roster of queer aunts and uncles, or did you grow up straight? Like, um, <laughs> so I, I do think mm-hmm. even those those intimate friendships and that closeness, we can, we can choose that. I think for a lot of queer folks, especially if they're they're newer to coming out and coming into the skin, they don't understand how to form those relationships because we don't teach people mm. how to form intimate kind of familial bonds with people outside of our biological families. So yes. how do you go about finding those folks in the queer community? Well, you know, I, 
I, I do think it's tough because we don't have a lot of spaces that are not like bar kind of spaces and now the bars are disappearing and so it's online and online is its own like um it has its own video game psychology to it you know because you're like um you oscillate between Mr. Right and Mr. Right now and that depends on time of day and your mood and who sends you a message and who do you swipe like who do you match with there's so many dynamics I don't know how else to call it except the video game you know dynamic because I think there's like stuff around competition and timing and skill and all of this stuff. So I'm just going to say right out, it is hard, but the world is a a smaller place than it's ever been with that same technology, you know? So meetups, forums, I think it is important, like as, as fabulous as sex is, and we should look for people based on sexual interests, but also other interests. Like, I don't know how many gay men I've told, like, get an interest and a hobby (laughs) and like write it in your profile and look for somebody else that has that interest. And when you respond to somebody's profile, I get it. You're making a a really quick decision based on a thumbnail, read the profile and say something specific, speak to the thing in their profile that has to do with an interest. They like coffee. I know it sounds basic, but say Americano or cappuccino that, this could be a deal breaker for me. And of course, you're being funny when you say that. But respond to people's interests so that you cultivate you know, deeper relationships. I also think we need to be kinder to each other on online platforms. And this phenomena of you know, breadcrumbing and ghosting and orbiting is not always, it's not always very nice. So whether you know, you're meeting somebody in person or online, um, there are many, there are endless opportunities to practice communication that's authentic and can that would later cultivate better relationships. The more connection you have, obviously the better the long-term relationship is. I mean, you may just be looking for a one night or one afternoon hookup and, and go, but for those deeper connections, you got to have something to base it on, right? It can't just be good dick. Yeah. Right. Because it doesn't take that long before you, you choose good pizza over good dick like that. It's just not, it's not, uh, it's not an everyday, all of the time thing. Like relationships change. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And needs change as you grow and come into yourself. So you've had the, the advantage of living in multiple, very different countries around the world. Are queer communities basically the same everywhere in just a different language? Or are there really significant cultural differences that you've noticed? Mm-hmm. Mm, that's a great question. You know, there are some things that are quite similar that have, I think, been imported from the global north or the west, but there are other things that are, are a bit different. Like, for example, here where I am in Cape Town, there is such a big um, queer Muslim community that I see. I don't know. I, I don't think that they're super organized or have like a like a uniform kind of visibility, but I just see like visibility everywhere. And because the dominant culture recognizes Muslims, you know, in a significant way, their traditions, values, families, challenges, like those are, they're a bit more known. On the flip side, you know, as much as there's racism in North America, there's racism in South Africa. And it's, it's less, I think, in my experience, the conversations are um, less developed because apartheid ended about 27 years ago. And so 
of course, politicized folks can talk about that stuff, but a lot of queer people I've met are hesitant or shy or I know like they're not sure how to have the conversations around privilege. But you know, the architecture is set up for urban division. And so there are club, there's a club, you know, there's clubs where you go where it's a white majority, you know, patronage, and then a club where there's people of color and black folks that are the majority. So that separation is like, it's really, it's really something, you know? And then I think about North America and we, we have a lot more integration, but we also have like racism is not, not an issue. Like that's still a huge thing. Right. And in many ways you could argue like with, with, uh, redlining and poverty and the color of poverty. There is a lot of segregation in North America. It just, it, it'll look less like a bit different than here. One thing I would say though is I've been I've been meeting folks here that are like uh, like there's a spectrum of people that are similar to the spectrum back home. You know, the person who struggles with their body image and shame and spends all their time in the gym, but also doesn't leave their house to do social things. And then the other per- other few people who are always going on dates, they love to just go on dates, you know, and there's other people who are trying to figure out uh, their own gender identity and they've reached 35 and 40 and they're like, I'm non-binary and this, I love this. This is like, I'm, I'm living a whole new world, uh, you know, so th- there's this similarity of range um, what I find uh, interesting, though, is that gender feels a bit different here in that I notice a lot more. Uh, there's a community of femme gay men, and I don't know if they identify as trans or I don't I don't know how maybe they identify as non-binary. I'm not sure. And they're much more visible on the on the dating apps and the, and the hookup apps that I, I don't see to the same degree back home. And they they hang out in a lot of gay men's spaces. Uh, and so that's kind of interesting because like if I think about back home, like in Toronto or even in United, like the, the cities I visited in the States, I don't see a ton of trans women hanging out in the same spaces as gay men unless they're drag queens or performance people. Yeah, I'm making an assumption about people's identities here, but like that's, you know, they present to me as like possibly, you know, they're part of a, they have some kind of trans experience. And so I find that kind of, that kind of interesting because when I think about Toronto, I do wish gay men like there was more of a connection between gay men and trans women like i always wish that but i don't see it in the same way well in the gay men's community in a lot of north american spaces masculinity is preference right yeah you can be a twink for so long and after you pass that age limit you need to be masculine and Yes. A lot of people will have shame around being more feminine, more flirty, you know, or what's perceived mm. as feminine. How do we begin to address that as a community where we we stop this mask privilege for for gay men? Well, I think I think we really have to help gay men see that uh, just because they're marginalized in one way doesn't mean that they're immune to misogyny. Right, because they're perpetuating it and they love to say like the C word or say like they love to use some language that in some context maybe, I don't know, maybe is okay, it's sassy, it's fine, it's in an in-group. But they I think there needs to be more recognition that um, you know, their liberation is on the backs of a lot of women 
<laughs> you know, who have, or, or not maybe on the back, so on the, as the result of a lot of women's organizing. And I think queer women can teach gay men a lot about acceptance, body positivity, communication. I, I, I don't know. In my experience, I, I've seen queer women um, be more expressive in ways that gay men feel are maybe a bit, they hold back or maybe they're a bit stunted. I'm not sure. But I, I do think we need to challenge toxic masculinity and really make a, a very clear connection between homophobia and femphobia, right? Like when, and, you know, when people say that's so gay or you're gay or whatever it is, I don't like, they're not really, they don't really care that you like boys. They don't like that you're feminine, <laughs> right? And we need to rewrite like what it means to be a man in this world. Like you could be a man who has a disability, who appears weak at times, who cries, who's feminine, who doesn't earn a ton, you know, like our value has to come from like being there for our communities. Our value has to come from, and we have to really reimagine this whole thing. <laughs> I think what a lot of people miss when they haven't been in the political end of the queer community is that mm. the same thing that drives misogyny is the same thing that drives racism is the same thing that yes. drives phobia. <laughs> and until we, like, it's all wrapped up in this fucked up little bundle that makes so many of us feel really shitty about ourselves so much of the time that mm. if you start to address the core of it, it's all the same issue, right? That yes, people want everybody else to fit in this little simple mold, and we're human. We just don't. <laughs> There's, yes, and that's the joy of being human. Yes, and I, you know, I think for me, uh, and and I suspect this of you too, that we kind of see queerness as a political identity and part of queerness is to be politicized. And I know that's not for everybody, but I, you know, I do think it would be helpful if people did think about disrupting, you know, disparity, inequity, oppression. If we thought of, if we thought about it as like linking our, our experiences, that would be like, that could work out quite well. <laughs> You know, but but we have to give something up, and that's what's hard. You have to give up your privilege and your proximity to power, and that is very, very difficult. Very few people want to walk away from that because if you've been disadvantaged in any area of your life, you know what it is to not have privilege. Mm -hmm. And to have any amount of privilege is to recognize how you treat other people without privilege, and none of us want to be treated like that. Totally. You know, I, I wrote a, uh, a small piece um, called Highs and Lows. Uh, I actually was called Cardio Highs. And I was, uh, it was in this anthology called Any Other Way, How Did Toronto Get Queer? And I talk about it as like the things that go on in my mind when I'm on a treadmill. And uh, I end the piece by just saying, I'm running, I increase the speed, um, hoping to run away faster and faster from the prospect of ever being rejected ever again, you know? And, and I really do think about that in terms of like how people work very, very hard to never have that bad experience again. And that means at the expense of others sometimes. Exactly. Exactly. And so for all of our listeners, you have lots of ways for people to find you. So give all the shout outs to your podcast, to your social media, all that good stuff. 
All right. So the easiest way to link to all of my links is ladyadavan.com, L-A-D-Y-A-T-I-V-A-N.com. And that'll take you to all my links. So that's the easiest way to get in touch. I also have a podcast called the CBT Dive. CBT stands for Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, and it's a YouTube channel and an audio podcast. So I guide people through a tool called the Thought Record. So if you want, if you're interested, you know, in demystifying therapy and seeing what CBT can be like, uh, you can go to cbt.ca, sorry, thecbtdive.ca. That'll take you to my YouTube page, or you can just search for me wherever you get your podcasts. And Lady Adavan is the easiest way to find me. So ladyadavan.com. I'm on all of the things, really. Except for TikTok, because like, I can't make videos constantly. It's too exhausting. Yes. And I would say definitely follow, follow Raheem. Check out the podcast. Uh, thank you for clarifying that's cognitive behavioral therapy, because some of our listeners are thinking it's another form of CBT, which is quite fun, but does very different things. Uh, yes. <laughs> it's been wonderful <laughs> having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. And now, a moment of gratitude. I am quite grateful to have food in my fridge. That might sound a bit basic, but you know, I'm I'm staying in a place where people like when I leave my apartment multiple times a day, people ask me, like, can I have money? Can I have food, money for bread? And when somebody asks for something so specific, it really strikes a chord with me. And so I look at my, I open my fridge and I say, shukar. And shukar in my language is like gratitude. Thank you. Um, And I'm really thankful to just have food in my fridge. And throughout the pandemic, I've been really connected with my family. And I'm really, I'm really thankful for the people in my life and my family in particular. Hi, this is Anthony Vice from Fat Chicks on Top. I want to take a minute and talk about Newsly. Newsly is an all-in-one audio super app for iOS and Android. It picks up web articles on the most trending topics at any given moment and reads them in a natural human voice. For the first time ever, the entire internet has become listenable all in one place. This is great for accessibility needs as well as people who would rather listen than scroll. Explore trending podcasts from 50 countries. Our podcast, Fat Chicks on Top, is there too. You can download Newsly for free from www.newsly.me and use the promo code FC0T, one month free premium subscription. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks.
at fatchicksontop.com.